there was not a bigger Cincinnati Reds baseball fan in Memphis than John. His text always ended, love you, Micah, go Reds, triple exclamation point, JK. Start timing now. (laughs) In that spirit, with a new season underway, baseball stories can help us understand our faith traditions perhaps more clearly and concisely than any others. And one such story is about three umpires who were discussing how they call a pitch. The first one said, I watched the pitcher throw the baseball, ball, strike, and I call him as I see him. Second one said, ball, strike, and I calls them as they are. The third one said, ball, strike, but they ain't nothing until I calls them. (laughs) Isn't that the truth? Until the umpire makes the call, it is nothing. It's just a ball thrown past the plate. Only with the call does it take on meaning, ball or strike. Until then, it is merely potential. It only has meaning when the umpire calls it. If this is true of baseball, how much more is it true of a human life? Is it not? A baby is born and he or she is also just potential. Hasn't been defined yet. The baby will grow up, start down a path. Will her or his life be a ball or strike? Will he or she miss the plate, fall short of the mark, not live up to his or her potential? Will the parents coaching the child nurture well or punish hard? Will this new human being hit his stride and find the plate? Will she belt a home run or lots of steady singles? Will He become the best version of himself by viewing life not only from the field, but from way up high in the stands. Will this new life become for his parents or her grandparents a source of pride and joy or a source of challenge and trouble? At birth, you never know because a baby is just potential. This idea unfolds in the classic rabbinic midrash about two ships, one leaving the harbor on a long voyage, the other coming into the same harbor at the end of a very long voyage. For the one leaving the harbor, everybody's nervous, not knowing whether the boat will successfully reach its destination, and yet... Everybody's there to celebrate the send-off with a ceremonial ship launching, often with champagne, even though nobody knows what the outcome will be. But what about the ship coming in? It goes virtually unnoticed. There's no ceremony to celebrate it, even though a rough voyage at sea has been successfully completed. The rabbis suggest that the same paradox applies with life. A baby is born, 
and we feel such joy as we should. Yet we never know if that baby will live a fulfilling life, whether he or she will live up to his or her potential. And yet everyone is there at a christening or a bris or baptism or baby naming to celebrate the birth. The person dies, and of course nobody celebrates because we feel such great sadness. Nonetheless, if that person has lived a good life and done something great, no matter how long or short their time here on earth, we ought to feel a measure of comfort and contentment, shouldn't we? Only when life ends can we determine whether a life contributed to a greater purpose. Only then can we finally call it a ball or a strike. And that distinction suggests an interesting fact about Judaism. Did you know that until recent centuries, Jews did not celebrate birthdays? Now, I suspect as the years keep taking their toll, all faiths may wish to adopt this custom. <laughs> Since counting age is one thing, being well enough to celebrate is another. Fact is, the Bible we share only mentions one birthday, and that was for Pharaoh, the king of Egypt in Genesis 40.20. Pharaoh, whose life was set out for him in advance, yet who never seemed to have the will to do the right thing, he's the only one whose birthday is celebrated in the entire Hebrew Bible Old Testament. In Judaism, when we choose to remember a person we choose their day of death and call it their yortzite, their personal anniversary. We do that to remember the all of a person's life, how a person lived, not that he or she died. Now, Memphians practice this custom in remembering Elvis. <laughs> Elvis may have been born on January 8th, but it is every August when fans around the world gather in Memphis for Elvis Week, a celebration of the music, movies, and legacy of the king. And Elvis Week always culminates with the famous candlelight vigil, which always begins on the evening of August 15th and lasts into the morning of August 16th, the date of Elvis's death, as fans walk up the driveway to Meditation Garden, holding a candle in quiet remembrance. Martin Luther King Jr. was born on January 15, 1929. And the national holiday, his extraordinary wife, Coretta, labored through legislation, is always on the third Monday, which is rarely his birthday. Next year, the third Monday is January 20th. But who could have predicted at Martin's birth on January 15, 1929, the influence a baby boy named Martin would have on the ideals and character of our nation and world in only 39 years on earth? My dear friends, today, April 4th, is the date of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s death. Today is the Yortzite, the personal anniversary 
of the brilliant orator, Ph.D., minister, civil rights giant who died on a balcony down the street from this great church defending garbage workers for a 10-cent raise. Last year's 50th commemoration led to an international pilgrimage to Memphis. But just one year later, today, few stop to think about what we are doing sacrificially to carry on King's legacy on this holy date. Other than a famous song by Bono and U2, and a few speakers this afternoon at the National Civil Rights Museum, there's no vigil for Martin tonight, as there is for Elvis, except for a few of us who stay into the evening every April 4th. In the name of love, what more in the name of love? That's the lyric from the U2 song, whose title isn't revealed until these words in the final verse. Early morning, April 4, shot rings out in the Memphis sky. Free at last, they took your life. They could not take your pride. Actually, it was 6.01 in the evening, not early morning, when we all took King's life. James Earl Ray was the guilty shooter, but we're all responsible for killing the dreamer back then, just as we are all responsible today for standing in our seats idly by as Muslims, Jews, blacks, immigrants are accused of replacing and invading white America and changing the color and complexion of a country whose lost cause was segregation, bigotry, and inequality. I do not feel guilty for the death of King, but I sure hope we all feel responsible for preventing further hatred against immigrants, Muslims, and the other vulnerable populations whom Jesus the Jew would run toward not away from. And I sure hope more Americans feel responsible realizing King's dream of a safe, peaceful, and just city grounded in compassion, nonviolence, love, and equality. King was a witness, and so was Elie Wiesel, the Holocaust survivor whose class I used to audit in Boston when I was a grad student. Wiesel used to say, and catch this quote, listening to a witness makes you a witness. King the witness, Wiesel the witness, a favorite subject in Wiesel's writings were the people in society whom others witnessed and called madmen from the biblical prophets like Jeremiah and Amos to modern times. Wiesel said that madness holds the key to spiritual activism because without madness, if we're too sane by the standards of our surroundings, we get carried along with the world's madness while we enjoy our own comfort, our own weekends. He loved to retell the famous story of the rabbi who came to the city of Sodom. The rabbi began to preach to the city's inhabitants, telling the people of Sodom to change their malicious ways. The rabbi wanted to save them from a destruction he knew would come. 
as a result of their meanness. Please, he said, stop your cruelty. Stop your demonizing. Stop your bullying. Stop your inhumanity. Be kind to the stranger and to the children of the stranger. The rabbi went on like that for many days. No one listened. But he did not give up. He continued preaching and protesting for many years. And finally, a passerby asked him, Rabbi, really? Why do you do this? Don't you see? No one is listening. He answered, I know no one is listening, but I cannot stop. You see, at first I thought I had to preach and protest in order to change them. But now, although I continue to speak, it is not to change the world. It is so that they do not change me. That is why I preach. And this is why, my friends, we must learn from madmen. Because as Wiesel says, they do not stop even when others tell them to be silent. The one whom we remember this evening at the National Civil Rights Museum had more death threats against his life when he was in his 30s than most people realize, yet he refused to be silent. And his letter from the Birmingham jail was not addressed to white nationalists whose depravity and inhumanity are self-evident. His letter was addressed to pulpit rabbis like me, or Rabbi Bowman, or Rector Walters. King felt that a minister or a rabbi who gives a good sermon, writes a tidy letter, and doesn't cause any problems, is called a fence-sitter. But someone who refuses to stop, that person gets labeled an outsider or a madman or a madwoman. And yet, when you study history, Wiesel argues, it was precisely the justice-driven madmen who have shown us how to effectively resist evil and promote positive change. Take Andrea Constand. Almost 60 women came forward with their accounts of sexual molestation and drugging by Bill Cosby, and virtually all of these women were silenced, except Miss Constand, who would not stop. She was branded a mad woman, and worse, for refusing to be silent, even after all the other victim stories about being molested by a sexual predator had been dismissed, mad women like Andrea Constand are not mad. They are really messengers who force the rest of us to recognize evil. As Wiesel puts it in one sentence, as an outsider himself, the madman reminds others of their own madness. On the day we're born, we do not know what will happen to us or how we will respond. Only when life is over can we say whether we have lived up to our divine potential. At birth, the pitch has been thrown. Like that departing ship, we have all left the harbor on our life journey. Wherever we find ourselves in the sanctuary at this moment during Lent, we can always change course. We can check our direction and make adjustments. We can study the path we're on and decide to stay on it or stray from it. 
But you and I do not have to wait for this annual Lenten season to know that our fate is not sealed. We can change. We can all speak out. We can all stand up even when we're seated. We can even turn around and start all over again. We can define our future no matter what our past because we have been invested by God with the power to change the world. And if not the world, then Memphis. And if not all of Memphis, then wherever you and I can make a difference. My dear friends, what you are is God's gift to you. But what you do with your life and who you become is your gift to God. And it was that fundamental truth which led Dr. King not to walk away from Memphis 51 years ago last night in his final sermon when he asked, the question is not what will happen to me if I help the sanitation workers. The question is, what will happen to them if I do not? Thank God for the madmen like King who preached love and equality during a time of inequality and hate. Thank God for the power each of us has to do the same, to determine whether the pitches that come across our home plate receive our honest review, our focused attention, and perhaps most importantly, our immediate action, whether you swing a bat or not. After all, the pitches thrown our way, they ain't nothing until each of us calls them. Amen. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord.